Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. So last week, what we did is we covered the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and we're going to be picking up in chapter 1, verse 18 today. Uh, But one thing I want to remind us before we go into this teaching is I want to remind us just the ultimate goal that Matthew has whenever he's writing this, because I believe that Matthew is writing very early on in the existence of the Christian church. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and he is trying to make sure that he gets their attention early on to make it clear to them that Jesus not only existed, but he had a valid claim to the throne. And so that's how he started off his whole gospel, right? The verses, like the genealogy that we see at the very beginning is him explaining that Jesus had the right bloodline to fit the credentials to be the messianic king that people have been awaiting. And really, that's the thing he needed to address right off the bat, because it doesn't matter what Jesus did during his earthly ministry, If he didn't have the right credentials, if he was not descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, through David, through the royal line of David, if he didn't have that, he has no claim for the throne. And so nothing moving forward matters if he doesn't have those credentials. But what Matthew is going to do through the rest of chapter 1, and then also in chapters 2, 3, and 4, is he is going to authenticate Jesus's person. He is going to demonstrate that not only does Jesus have the right bloodline, but he is fulfilling prophecy, and he is doing all the things necessary. And just in these early chapters, he is going to demonstrate that Jesus is not simply a valid claimant of the messianic title, but he is the only valid claimant of the messianic title. And he is going to demonstrate how every single aspect of Jesus's early ministry demonstrates that he is the Messiah. And we're going to start with that by looking at the birth of Jesus, starting here in verse 18. And the only thing that we're going to cover today is what you see on the slide right here, verses 18 through 25. This is the stuff that you're used to hearing about during Christmas time and stuff. And even though it's not Christmas whenever we're going through this, hopefully you'll still have a lot to learn here. All right, I'm going to read the whole thing for us, then we're just going to walk through it piece by piece. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, so there obviously is this parallel account to the story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We're not even going to address that stuff today. Today, we're simply going to focus on these verses right here. And just from a big picture perspective, let me summarize what we have here. We have a miraculous birth that is announced by angels that comes as the fulfillment of prophecy 
right? Just looking at it from that perspective, you can see how this story right here, just these few verses, further authenticates Jesus in his claim to the messianic throne, in his claim to being the actual Davidic king who will reign not over only not only over Israel, but over all the nations, right? He was born miraculously. His birth was announced. He is fulfilling prophecy even before we've seen him do anything. Just by his birth, he's fulfilling prophecy. And two weeks from now, what we're going to do is we're actually going to slow down a little bit and we're going to look at all the different prophetic statements that Matthew makes over the course of this chapter and also into the next chapter. And we're going to look at exactly what Matthew's doing with those verses and how he's interpreting those Old Testament passages. And we are going to look into that later on. But for today, the main thing I want to do is focus on the narrative itself. And we're just going to read through even that pro prophetic section right there and just take it for granted that Matthew knows what he's talking about and later on we'll actually address those elements in particular so let's walk through this now the birth of jesus christ was as follows right off the bat there's something that should stick out to us here and i even put the greek word in um parentheses right there because one thing that i argued in the last video and in the videos preceding it is that in addition to portraying jesus as the messianic king another thing that matthew's trying to accomplish in his gospel is he is actually presenting Jesus's history in a way that runs directly parallel to the story of Israel as we find it in the Hebrew Bible, which we also call the Old Testament. Uh, and I even talked about this, how the way that the book of Matthew opens and closes is very similar to how the Hebrew Bible opens and closes. Uh, the way that we structure the Old Testament in Christian circles is that it starts with Genesis and ends with Malachi. But if you were to look at like a Hebrew Bible, the way that they order it, it's actually organized a little bit differently to where it opens with Genesis and ends with Chronicles. And Matthew's structure is very parallel to that, right? So it says like the opening words of Matthew are the book of the genealogy. Right? And if you look at the book of Genesis, it is structured by books of genealogies. In Hebrew, it's the word toledot. And then if you look at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you have Jesus proclaiming this great commission where he says, all authority has been given to me, go and make disciples. That's very similar to what you read at the end of Second Chronicles whenever Cyrus makes his decree. And so Matthew is structuring his book in a way that runs parallel with the story of the Old Testament. And you see that included right here from the very way that he starts telling the narrative of Jesus, right? Because we have the genealogy, and as he moves forward, notice the word that he uses to describe the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows, and the word for birth there is the Greek word Genesis, right? So, in Hebrew, how does the book of Genesis start? Barashit bara Elohim, right? In the beginning, God created, right? Well, if you translate that into Greek, which that's the predominant translation they would have read at this time period, it's called the Septuagint, that starts off with the word Genesis. That's why we call the first book of the Bible Genesis. It means in the beginning. And so really, if you were going to translate this just directly, it says, now the beginning of Jesus Christ was as follows. So even from the way that Matthew begins to tell his story, he's alluding back to the book of Genesis, to the very first word of Genesis in the beginning, right? Now, the genesis of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. All right, we're introduced to three main players here, Mary, Joseph, and the Holy Spirit. And Mary and Joseph, they find themselves in the situation where they are betrothed to one another. And you've probably heard this broken down before, but I'm going to break it down again. Betrothal was kind of like a very strong and legal form of engagement, right? And so uh, they didn't have, like, 
relationships back then were vastly different than relationships nowadays. But basically what would happen whenever you wanted to get married to somebody is that the man and the woman would meet together with their families and they would have this formal like meal together where they would discuss a bride price and everything like that. And they would have this ceremony, which would be the betrothal ceremony. And then at that point, legally speaking, the couple is married but they are not consummating the relationship yet. And what happens is that the man would go away, he would prepare a place for him and his bride to live. And then after an unspecified amount of time, it could be months and it could be even up to a year, um, the man would go away, prepare all that stuff. And then he would eventually come back and take his bride to be with him. And they would have this huge ceremony, the official wedding ceremony, they would consummate the relationship. And then that point forward, they would be, um, they'd be married. And this time period of betrothal was key, was a very key moment for, um, it was a key um, time period for a bunch of reasons. First off, because it allowed the man to go prepare a place for him and his bride to make a family together, right? He would go prepare a house for them. But it was also in order to make sure that the woman was being faithful, right? Because if she gets pregnant during this time period, there's really only two possibilities here. Either she has been sleeping with somebody else or her and her husband have been sleeping together when they're not supposed to be sleeping together. So the betrothal time period was literally like the worst possible time to get pregnant. Yet that's exactly what happens to Mary right here. We see that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. So Joseph and Mary have not slept together. Joseph knows this, but there Mary has a baby. And right off the bat, Matthew makes it clear that Mary was not unfaithful to Joseph. She was found to be with child, but he makes it clear right off the bat, this is by the Holy Spirit. And so he makes it clear this is a miraculous event and there's nothing questionable about Mary's circumstances here. And in this way, he's kind of alluding back to the genealogy that we just went through. Because if you remember, I mentioned how if you look at the other women that are mentioned in that genealogy, each of them are associated with some sort of scandalous birth or scandalous pregnancy. Uh, but later on, when you look back at those women, you realize that they were actually women of virtue. And so if you look at people like Tamar and Rahab and all this stuff, there's a scandal associated with each of these women. Uh, and there's a certain level of scandal associated with the pregnancies that those women had. But whenever we look back at them now, we realize that these were women of virtue. And so it seems like Matthew is asking his readers to give Mary the benefit of the doubt at first and allow the story to unfold so he can further explain what exactly is going on here. And so Mary's still a virgin. She's betrothed to Joseph. She's found to be with child. And we know that nothing's happened, but Joseph doesn't know that. And nobody else knows that. And so we have to continue reading the story. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, right off the bat, this tells us that Joseph is a cool, cool guy. Because guess what? Up until this point in human history, there has only been one example of a virgin birth. And do you know who that was? Adam. And that's because Adam didn't even have a mother, <laughs> right? Adam was formed by God and his and life was breathed into Adam. But other than that, every single human to ever be born was born from a man and a woman coming together. And so now here, Joseph is there with his teenage, um, like, like betrothed wife coming up to him. And she's saying, I'm pregnant, but I promise I didn't cheat on you. And he knows that he didn't do anything, but who's going to believe that, right? And so from Joseph's perspective, 
he should be very mad. And he probably was very mad. And he's probably frustrated by this. And he would have every right to make a public spectacle of this to make it clear that he did not do this, right? Because the thing is, if everybody else is seeing that she's pregnant, then they're going to think that Joseph's the one who did it, right? That's going to be what they immediately think. And they're going to think that Joseph himself is the dishonorable person. And he's actually going to bear the greater reproach than even she did, right? Because he's ultimately the one who's responsible. And what Joseph decides to do, rather than making a public spectacle of it and disgracing her, instead he chooses to quietly divorce her right he chooses to just quietly part ways which just tells you that joseph is a really cool guy despite the fact that he probably feels lied to and cheated on and he feels like she's probably calling him stupid by thinking that he would believe this he just tries to quietly separate themselves uh, and in that way he's actually still choosing to bear the reproach because no matter what people are going to look at this and see that something weird's going on either they're going to think that joseph got her pregnant but was such a shameful man that he wouldn't stick with her or they're going to think that uh joseph was just some dude who mary had no problem cheating on like you know like the mary just went and cheated on him and that rather than defending his own honor uh he just kind of bore the shame and went away right no matter what he is choosing to bear reproach which tells us that joseph is a great great guy and so he plans on sending her away secretly but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. All right, so there are a few really cool things that happen here. First off, we have an angel showing up to basically clarify to Joseph, hey man, what she said is true. That's really cool. But also, we have Joseph kind of being promoted to a status that puts him on par with another Joseph that you might remember from the book of Genesis. Because guess what? There was this character named Joseph in the book of Genesis who also had a lot of dreams from God. And at this point, going forward in the narrative, specifically in chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see that Joseph is constantly receiving dreams from God, very similar to the Joseph we encounter in Genesis. And so we see that parallel. But also, notice what the angel calls him. Joseph, son of David right? So we have Joseph specifically being called the son of David right here. He is a descendant of David, and that title carries with it royal imagery. Joseph is a descendant from the throne of David, right? He is the royal heir of David, even if he's not currently sitting on the throne, right? There's multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Like, for instance, whenever David is on the run from Absalom, right? David is not sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. His son is sitting there, but throughout the narrative, it keeps calling David the king, the king, the king, the king. Why? Because all because you're not sitting on the throne doesn't mean that you're not the anointed one. Currently, Joseph is the son of David, even if he's not sitting on the throne. He is the king, even if he doesn't have a crown upon his head. And so this angel shows up to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the angel clarifies that the story that Mary said is 100% true. This baby is not the result of her unfaithfulness. It is genuinely a miraculous, unheard of thing wherein the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and has made her pregnant. Now there's a question we need to ask about all this. Why was it important for Jesus to be born of a virgin? And people will propose different reasons, right? And the one that I hear promoted most often is the idea that this has something to do with original sin. And it's the idea that 
um, sin is in some weird way passed down from the father to the children. And there might be an element of truth to that. I just don't really see that being spelled out explicitly in the Bible. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that that is the most often, that's most often the explanation I hear given. Whereas I think that we should probably look to see if the Bible gives its own explanation for why Jesus need to be born of a virgin rather than creating this theology that could be true that isn't explicitly taught in here, right? And so I think that the text itself is actually going to tell us why Jesus needed to be born of a virgin. And all we have to do is keep reading onwards, but we need to have that question ringing in the back of our heads. And so the angel clarifies, the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then he continues to say, notice this, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That right there is going to give us the answer to all of this, right? Because what Matthew is about to do in verses 22 and 23, he's going to quote this prophecy. And he's going to talk about a virgin giving birth to a son. But in the prophecy, the kid's name is Emmanuel. But that's not the name that Jesus is given here. Jesus is given the name Jesus. So to me, it seems like what Matthew is doing is he is demonstrating that the angel is clarifying why this child needs to be born of a virgin. And it has something to do with the name Jesus. Well, what does the name Jesus mean? It means the Lord is salvation, right? The Lord is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means. And so I think that the main reason Jesus needed to be born of a virgin does not simply have to do with original sin. It has to do with the fact that man cannot produce his own salvation, right? We've been waiting for this Messiah figure to show up literally since Genesis chapter 3. And I think that this verse is calling back to Genesis chapter 3 as well. I'll explain that in a second. But since the text of Genesis chapter 3, we have been waiting for this child to arrive who would crush the serpent and fix the world's problems. And we have been thinking that it would just be the product of a normal union between a man and a woman. But the consistent testimony of scripture is that man cannot produce his own salvation. The battle belongs to the Lord, right? God is the one who has to step in and fix things. And so the Messiah figure we've been waiting for, the salvation we've been waiting for, cannot simply come from a man and a woman coming together in physical union. Instead, God himself has to step into history and do something miraculous and produce this child so that when salvation comes, it's not Mary and Joseph who receive the credit. Rather, it is God himself who receives the credit for what has been accomplished here. And therefore, this child will be named the Lord is salvation. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, right? Yahweh is salvation, right? That is what's being communicated here. God is the one doing the saving, not man. I think that's the main reason this child needs to be born of a virgin. And this is what we see back in Genesis chapter 3. Whenever God talks to the serpent, what does he say? I'll put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. You shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head right? So whenever we read that, we thought it was just kind of, you know, implying that it's going to be a human descendant from woman. But we see that it's actually more explicit and literal than we ever could have thought. This is literally a seed that is just coming from the woman. It is not coming from the man and the woman. It is just coming from the woman because God is the one stepping in and producing this child, right? So that is really, really neat. If you just look at it from that perspective, 
It is the woman who will bear a son. This is the seed of the woman talked about in Genesis chapter 3. And you shall call his name Jesus. The Lord is salvation because he will save his people. Now, if you think of what the name Jesus means, that's a pretty big claim, right? You will call this child's name, like Yahweh is salvation because he will save his people. Well, who's the one who saves? Yahweh is the one who saves. And so if you're taking this hyper literally, right there in verse 21, you already have confirmation that this child is God in the flesh. And we know that's true about Jesus. I don't know if we can explicitly say that this is what Joseph and Mary would have understood at this point, but that is kind of what is being said, right? But you could always just say, well, maybe Yahweh is saving people through this child and therefore it's still true, right? But we do know that that's ultimately where this is heading. For he will save his people from their sins, right? So there is still some element of saving from sins uh, in this. Uh, but once again, goes back to Genesis chapter 3. He's going to crush the serpent. He's going to be the one who does it. And it can't happen from just a man and a woman coming together. God himself has to intervene in the world and produce this ultimate salvation. And this is where Matthew cuts in and he gives his own commentary. And he explains that this happened to fulfill prophecy. Now, all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, and this is quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. All right, so like I mentioned before, in two weeks, we're going to actually take a more in-depth look at these prophecies, because especially like with this prophecy right here, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in there. If you just go read Isaiah chapter 7, this does not seem to be a messianic prophecy. We're going to wrestle through that in two weeks. For right now, I'm just going to take for granted that Matthew knows what he's talking about, and I want to express what this is communicating in the context of the Gospel of Matthew. And so he lists the fact that the way that this birth came about directly fulfills prophecy. A virgin shall give birth to a son. And we literally have a virgin giving birth to a child. That calls back to Isaiah 7 and possibly even back to Genesis chapter 3. But here's the main thing that Matthew's emphasizing. He goes out of his way to translate something, right? This child, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, but we just read in the previous verses, this child's name is not called Emmanuel. His name is called Jesus. So how can you say his name is Jesus, but he's called Emmanuel? Well, Matthew explains. The word Emmanuel means God with us. So now you're getting this connection. Why is he called Jesus? Well, Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. Well, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So what do these things have in common? God has arrived to save the people. So right here, Matthew is communicating something mind-blowing, especially if you're a Jewish person reading this for the first time and you're trying to figure out what exactly the whole deal with the Messiah is. Matthew is communicating that the Messiah is something much bigger and more complex than people could have ever imagined. He is not simply the human product of a man and a woman having sexual relations. He is human, but in some way, he might be more than human. And in order to fully understand this, you've got to understand the broader context of what's going on with that phrase, God with us. Whenever Isaiah wrote this, God was dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem, right? And for all of Israel's history, God has been dwelling with the people, right? He dwelt with them in the tabernacle, and then he dwelt with them in the temple. And when Isaiah wrote this to his current audience, they could say, yes, God is with us currently. And in its original context, the word Emmanuel could have meant something different. It was just the idea that God was with them presently, and he was still supporting them and taking care of them. But here's the issue. When you get to the prophet Ezekiel, 
he has a vision of God's presence departing from the temple. And the people eventually go, they go into exile. And when they come back from exile, they rebuild the temple and they wait for God's presence to arrive. But God's presence never arrives. And so here the people of Israel for hundreds of years since then, going to the New Testament time period, whenever Matthew is writing this, they have been dwelling in the land of Israel and they have a temple, but God's presence is not dwelling in that temple in the same way it used to. And so whenever people looked back at this prophecy in Isaiah, they would have been constantly reminded about the fact that God was with them, but now they're left frustrated by the fact, wondering where is God? He doesn't seem to be with us anymore. For the last 400 years, God had gone silent and he's not inspiring prophets to go produce these new works. But now here, with the birth of this child, we have the announcement that Yahweh is salvation and that God is coming in and the Holy Spirit is doing something new. And he has overshadowed this woman to produce this child and this child himself is called God with us. Matthew is implying that this child is not simply a human. Yes, he is human. He is born of a woman, right? He is flesh and blood. But in some weird, mysterious way, he is beyond human. And his presence right there is God being with the people. And once again, I don't know if the Jewish audience would have immediately grasped the implications of that at this point in the story, right? Because at the very least... This is communicating that even if God isn't dwelling in the temple, well, guess what? He has sent his Messiah, and that means that he is still with us even if you don't feel his presence. But as Christians who understand the whole gospel of Matthew and who understand where this is ultimately heading, we realize that God is literally with us in the person of Jesus. He might not be dwelling in the temple how he once did, but now he himself has tabernacled through this little child born of Mary and Joseph. Verse 24. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. That's important because that means that Joseph responded in humility and submission and in taking Mary as his wife, he adopted Jesus as his son, which is super crucial because Joseph is descended from the royal line of David. And so by adopting Jesus as his son, he adopts Jesus into the royal line of David. And we might have evidence from the gospel of Luke possibly to think that Mary is also descended from David, in which case Jesus also has that physical connection through flesh and blood to David. But right here, this is important. Joseph takes Jesus as his adopted child and therefore makes him the heir to David's kingdom. So he got up from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Right? Why is that important? It's saying that he did not sleep with her until after she gave birth to a son. Because if he slept with her prior to then, it could be suggested that, you know, she got pregnant or something like that. Um, there's a lot of weird, complex things going on here, right? But there's no other heirs, right? Eventually, like, I'm a Protestant, right? So I don't believe that Mary had to be a virgin for the rest of her life. I think this verse actually teaches the opposite. I think it makes it fairly clear that... Joseph slept with her and they had a normal relationship after the birth of Jesus. And I think that the rest of scripture demonstrates that Jesus had brothers and sisters and stuff like that. If you're a Catholic or anything like that, you might disagree with me and that's okay. But the main implication here is that Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph and therefore he inherits the throne of David through that royal line, which we just covered in verses 1 through 17. So Joseph keeps her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. 
So even though they eventually get married and stuff, they still withhold consummating the relationship until afterwards. And he calls his name Jesus, right? He doesn't name him after any of his fathers or anything like that. He names him specifically Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is born. God has come to dwell with man. And he receives the name God is salvation because that is who is going to be producing the salvation that comes from here, right? God has arrived. So there's that text. And now what I want to do just to wrap up this video is I want to look at two things. First off, I want to look at how Jesus mimics the story of Israel in just these opening verses. And then secondly, what I want to do is I want to look at how these verses further authenticate the fact that Jesus is the king. And we've already kind of addressed these things. I just want to address them uh, in a more, uh, in a broader and more concise way at the same time, broader and concise. Both of those at the same time, even though they seem contradictory. All right, so first off, Jesus as Israel. There's a few ways that we see Jesus mimicking the story of Israel here. And these might not seem as straightforward in this section, but once you couple this with the next section, you'll begin to really see that this seems to be an intentional thing with Matthew. Like the, the things that he is choosing to include in his gospel are intentionally meant to connect us to the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament. The first one, his story begins with a birth that is initiated by the Holy Spirit, right? So I already talked about how the word for birth right there at the beginning of uh, verse 18 is the word Genesis, right? Well, that's how the whole Old Testament starts, right? Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if you go to verse two, what do we see? We see that the earth is formless and void, tohu vabohu in Hebrew, and the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, right? So whenever you open the text of scripture, you hear about a beginning where the spirit of God is hovering over something to give rise to a new creation. Well, in that way, Jesus is that new creation. Obviously he is uncreated. And that's what John's going to really hammer down when he starts his gospel in the beginning was the word, right? So he, Jesus already existed at this point, but how Matthew's framing this is that Jesus is following in the footsteps of the old Testament, right? This child is going to be born and he is born in the beginning, right? Genesis. And it begins with the Holy spirit hovering, right? The Holy spirit overshadows Mary and produces this new child. Secondly, he is born by the spirit of God, not by natural means, kind of like Adam. I mentioned this earlier in our video, how the only other person in all human history to not have a normal birth in the sense of man and woman coming together to produce a child is Adam, right? Adam is the first man created and the way that he was created is God taking the initiative, forming him and breathing life into him by the spirit. That's exactly what we see with Jesus right here, right? God is the one stepping in. And in this way, Eve herself almost kind of represents creation, right? God is coming in here. His spirit hovers over her. And through that, he creates this child that he breathes his life into, right? And the word for breath and spirit in both Hebrew and Greek are the same, right? So he put his spirit in this child. He gives the spirit of God uh, he hovers over this, like the spirit of God hovers over Mary and produces this child. And so Jesus becomes the second Adam. He becomes the new Adam. This is phraseology that we're going to see later on in the New Testament. Paul's going to use this all the time. This is where he gets it. And then thirdly, and this is the last one I'm going to list today. There's some other things I could list, but they're more stretches. Whereas these are the things that seem to be very clearly being articulated by Matthew. His miraculous birth was announced to, anticipated by, and accomplished through parents who had no business giving birth to a child. 
And in this way, he is very similar to Isaac, right? So if you're just walking through the grand scope of the Old Testament story, you go through creation and eventually you get to the people of Israel with Abraham, right? And Abraham and his wife are super duper old people who cannot have babies. They are barren, yet God announces that a child will be born to them. And they even begin to doubt it, kind of like Joseph doubted it. But eventually that child is born. That's exactly what we see with Jesus, but his parents are on the opposite end of the spectrum. Rather than Mary and Joseph being super old, they're actually super young. And rather than having tried again and again and again to have a child to no avail, they haven't even tried yet because they're just betrothed. And so both couples have no reason to be having a child. Abraham and Sarah, it was because they were barren and they were old. And Mary and Joseph, it's because they're young and they haven't even had sex yet. Right? And so none of them have business having a child, but then you have this miraculous birth being foretold by the angels of God. And they show up and they announce this to come, and eventually that child is born, and that follows in line with the entire storyline of Israel, especially when you realize what Isaac represented. Isaac represented the fulfillment of the covenants with God. It was whenever Sarah got pregnant with Isaac that Abraham had true confirmation that God was with them, right? God, Abraham was living by faith. God told him, get up, go to this land that I'm going to give you, and I'll do all this stuff for you. And the main thing this hinged upon was that God said that through Abraham, all the world, like through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Abraham gets up and does all this stuff, but he doesn't see any fruit from that, right? He goes and lives in the land, he doesn't have a kid and he waits year after year after year and then finally after 25 years this child is born and through Isaac's birth Abraham finally had confirmation that God was with him Isaac's birth represented the fact that God was still with Abraham even though all this time had passed that's the same thing that's happening whenever Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph the people of Israel have been suffering through this silence they have probably begun to doubt whether or not God is with them he is still with them. And we see that through this miraculous birth that was announced to, anticipated by, and accomplished through parents who had no business giving birth to a child. So already we see how this is working sequentially through the book of Genesis. And we're going to see this continue on into the next section, which we'll cover next week. But let me also talk about how Matthew authenticates Jesus as king, and then we'll wrap this video up. So first off, his conception was miraculous, right? So if we're just walking through the argument that Matthew is making here, the apologetic, the defense of Jesus's kingship, he's already defended that Jesus is born from the right family line. But in addition to that, his conception was miraculous, right? This was not a normal circumstance by which to be born. So that already highlights things even more. And this puts him on par with some of the amazing heroes of the faith that we read about through the Old Testament, right? You have all these other people who show up and they have miraculous births, especially the patriarchs, right? Like you have all these barren women who end up giving birth to children because God was still with them. In addition to that, his birth was announced by the angel of the Lord, right? Which also puts him on par with all these amazing figures throughout the Old Testament who have their births announced in anticipation of the fact that they're going to be really important figures, right? You have people like Isaac, you have people like Samson, right? You have these people who their births are miraculously announced to anticipate the fact that during their lifetime, they're going to do something amazing. And so if you're a Jewish reader reading this and you're reading the story of Jesus and you see that his birth is miraculous and you see that his birth was anticipated and announced by angels of God, you're being to, beginning to think, wow, 
this actually does sound like somebody who might be the king, right? And then even in his birth, he is living out the history of Israel, right? If you're a Jewish person who has studied the scriptures, you're not going to miss these connections that I'm highlighting. The main reason I have to highlight them is because people don't study their Old Testaments as much. But a Jewish reader, they're reading this and they're like, oh, wow, this is, mir this is miraculous. This is amazing. He is literally living out the history of Israel. And what you have to do as you read the story of Jesus, you see him living out Israel's history but as the parallels show up, you're also going to notice the differences. And one thing that we know about the history of the people of Israel as you go through the Old Testament is that they are the people of God, but they're a very rebellious and imperfect people. What's cool about Jesus is that as he goes through the history of Israel, where they strayed, he is going to stay faithful. And the people who are originally reading Matthew's gospel, they're going to notice this and it's going to click in their heads. They're going to be like, ah, this guy truly is the Messiah because he's living out our history, but he's being faithful where we were not. He is the one who can truly crush the serpent. He is the one through whom all the nations genuinely can be blessed. He is the righteous king who will reign forever. This is what's going on in the mind of Matthew's Jewish readers. And then fourthly, and I believe this is the last one I listed here, we see that Jesus, even in his birth, before he's ever done anything, before he's even been born from the womb, we see that he is fulfilling prophecy. Because in Isaiah chapter 7, it says, the virgin will give birth to a son. And once again, that prophecy isn't as clear cut as I'm making it sound right now. We're going to deal with that in two weeks whenever we actually look at how Matthew used prophecy. But at the very least, we want to demonstrate that in some way, Matthew is asserting that Jesus doesn't simply have the right bloodline and the events of his life don't just speak of royalty, but he is literally fulfilling the text of scripture in the very way that we would expect the Messiah to do. Because guess what? There's this very dense Old Testament theology of the Messiah. And if you're a Jewish person reading this, if, once you see that he has the right genealogy, the next thing you're going to ask is, okay, he has the right bloodline in his credentials, but did he do the things that the Bible says the Messiah is going to do? And so Matthew begins to say, yes, not only does he have the right credentials, but he's fulfilling prophecy. The things the Bible said about him, he is doing. And so, like I said, we're going to go more in depth into that. But for right now, I think we will leave it there. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.